America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great day in the world of politics. Why? Well, because for those people who are craving some other alternative besides Donald Trump or Joe Biden for the presidency of the United States, there's a big gathering taking place in New Hampshire, where else, a site of the nation's first primary election. Of course, they have caucuses in Iowa. Uh, a big meeting of the group uh, No Labels, where they are going to be hearing from John Huntsman, former governor of Utah, together with Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, who has been talked about as a third-party candidate for president. Uh, so is it likely that we will be in that situation where we are stuck with Trump and Biden? Uh, two figures who are not terribly popular, but seem to have a lock on the nomination. Uh, NBC political reporter Jonathan Allen uh, has reported on this entire campaign as it shaped up. More to the point, he uh, reported on the last campaign, the one that uh, was won by Joe Biden, and he has a book called Lucky uh, about that. It was a number one bestseller. Uh, Jonathan, right now, uh, when you look back at this period of time of July, right after the 4th of July of 2016, was it obvious at that point that the two candidates would be Trump and uh, Biden? Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely uh, sure that if you look back at this point in the calendar that you would have concluded that necessarily. But that probably would have been the best odds you would have given. Right. Biden had a better uh uh, you know, better poll standing than any of the other Democrats, um, you know, one that he effectively never really gave up in terms of national polls. But, you know, Biden was at a much lower percentage of the Democratic electorate back then than Trump is right now uh, with the Republicans. And uh, what what about this uh, idea? George Will has a column today where he says, uh, no, it's not going to be. Uh, Biden for the Democrats, and it's not going to be Trump for the Republicans. Do you think he has a point? Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to be able to see into George Will's crystal ball or, <laughs> or any other crystal balls, uh, but I think that, um, you know, I think that the most likely scenario is Biden versus Trump, um, and you know, uh, with the caveat that a lot, you know, a lot could happen between now and next November. And uh, again, it's a, a George Will also does not believe that uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be the one to knock uh, Trump out of the position of leadership. He, um, Ron DeSantis had uh, a story that broke Saturday night, a Saturday night massacre, firing roughly a dozen staffers in a campaign shakeup. Is that significant? It is significant, and the reason that I think it's significant is uh, what it says about, A, where the campaign stands just sort of politically. Um, I think he needs to reassure his donors, needs to reassure his top supporters uh, that he is on top of things at a time when his poll numbers have stalled out. If you look at the real clear politics average of national polls right now, Trump's at 54 percent. Uh, DeSantis is at 20%. So I think you need to do that. But the other thing that's really important here, Michael, is 
DeSantis raised a ton of money. He raised $20 million in six weeks. He burned through about 40% of it, uh, burned through about $8 million. Another $3 million is earmarked for the general election, meaning he can't, can't use it in the primary. Uh, and about 70% of the money that he raised came from what we call max-out donors, meaning donors who gave the legal limit already of what they can give, meaning that he can't go back and tap them again, which means if you're his campaign and you're looking at how do you run the operation for the next several months, you have to be really worried that you're you're running through money faster than you can bring it in. Um, and so I think that that's got to be a concern for him, and I think it was a concern for him, and it's part of the reason they've trimmed the staff a little bit. Uh, a lot of people are looking forward to the debates, which uh, on the 23rd of August, which it uh, is very possible President Trump will not attend. But uh, assuming that he doesn't uh, attend the debates, do you think that the the sort of mini debates they had with the family leader uh, forum where they had uh, Tucker Carlson asking six different leading Republican candidates for president, not including Trump. Do you think that moved the dial at all or did people just seem to not care? I think we're going to have to wait a little bit in Iowa uh, to see whether that does move the dial. Um, you know, the, I think the DeSantis people were very pleased with his performance uh, in that environment, certainly pleased with Tucker Carlson going after some of the other candidates. So take a, take a, a deep breath and wait for some more Iowa polling to come out and to wait to see, uh, you know, how, how DeSantis deploys his, his resources, particularly in that state. Um, you know, if you, if you can pull off a win, a surprise win in Iowa, um, you know, Strange things can happen in campaigns. Uh, not necessarily the uh, winner of Iowa will go on to become uh, the nominee, but uh, certainly one way you show momentum or one way you can cut against a, a, a narrative of losing at the national level is to start winning states. And, of course, Iowa doesn't vote until January of next year. So we've, we've got some time to watch this develop. Well, well, we do. One of the things that's developing tonight was the – no labels meeting up in uh, St. Anselm's College in New Hampshire. There are so many pieces that are out there about how the Biden campaign is worried about a third party candidate like a Joe Manchin with no labels uh, destroying his chances of winning reelection. Uh, first of all, do you think that it, he's right to be concerned? And second of all, is there anything the Democrats can do to head off that third party threat? I mean, Democrats should be more worried about Biden if he's not concerned about the threat of a third-party candidacy. They saw in 2016, um, you know, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein and, uh, you know, other third-party candidates stripped votes uh, out from the two parties, and that, that harmed uh, Hillary Clinton in swing states. So even with a, you know, a relatively small footprint of, uh, you know, say the Green Party, a candidate can cause a lot of distress a third party candidate cause a lot of distress for uh one of the, the main two parties uh you know and i think uh with no label saying they're going to spend 70 million dollars to get on the ballot i mean that's that's real money so biden should be worried i think i think that he is worried um at least the people around him are worried but it's not something they want to talk about i think they're hoping it will just go away on its own yeah well again it looks like uh, tonight should not go away 
Did you see that Larry Hogan uh, indicated he might support? He is a, a, an official of No Labels, and he said he might support their ticket, uh, meaning he might be on their ticket. <laughs> I mean, we still don't know who's, who those candidates are going to be, and it doesn't surprise me that Hogan would be uh, somebody who would be in the mix for that. He was a very popular Republican governor of Maryland. Um, and, you know, so I, it wouldn't shock me if he ended up on that ticket or Manchin, Joe Manchin from West Virginia did or John Huntsman, the former uh, Republican governor of Utah. There's a handful of people. The question, I think, is, you know, will any of them get traction? And, and you can expect that they're going to be fought, um, you know, by the Democrats in terms of trying to get ballot access and things like that as uh, as they as the, you know, as no labels tries to get up and running. Um, but. You know, I guess I hate to say this again, Michael, but like I sort of feel like we're in a wait and see. Does is the no labels things something that actually develops or not? Right, and and, and we are indeed because that's uh, who, who would have predicted uh, again that uh, we would have had nineteen percent of the vote going to Ross Perot. Now, of course, earlier in the campaign, and that was after he had come in, he had dropped out. Uh, this is a complicated situation, and uh, we will uh, give you more perspectives on that. And uh, uh, Ron DeSantis making a very big pitch to the pro-Israel vote. That and more coming up on the Medved Show. Michael, you know everything about anything. Michael Medved. the best show on radio. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, an organization that I have spoken for several times uh, called Christians United for Israel uh, just had its 18th uh, annual policy conference yesterday. And uh, the star speaker for that conference was uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida. And there were only two other Republican candidates for president who were invited to speak there to uh, the group founded by Pastor John Hagee. Who were they? What does it mean? Uh, why was President Trump not invited? We will get to that. Uh, but first of all, another uh, very different kind of gathering was held in Chicago over the weekend. And uh, one of the Democratic leaders of the House, the leader of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal from downtown Seattle, uh, Pramila Jayapal um, made a, a statement that Israel was, in fact, a racist state. And uh, the what happened was there was a panel discussion going on, and then the panel was interrupted by some uh, very angry pro-Palestinian demonstrators. And uh, it sounded like this. This is clip eight. Hey guys, can I say something? Can I say something as somebody that's been in the streets and, and has participated in a lot of demonstrations? I think I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream 
that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us, that it is not, that it does not even feel possible. It does not even feel possible. And I want you to know that while you may, while you may have arguments with, with whether or not some of us on stage are fighting hard enough, I do want you to know that there is an organized opposition on the other side, and it isn't the people that are on this stage. Okay, uh, that was Pramila Jayapal, member of Congress, uh, part of the... Uh, one of the leaders and one of the most outspoken people in the uh, uh, Progressive Caucus, also associated with the squad, uh, with uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And the statement that Israel is a racist state in a country which is, <laughs> it's virtually the only country in the Middle East where Arabs vote and are, are free to vote and participate in uh, elections which are frequent and often very raucous and controversial, but uh, in which there are Arab members of the parliament, Arab members of the Supreme Court, Arab directors of uh, scientific study at the major universities. And the idea that Israel is a racist state when, according to the very Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel from May of 1948, the the basic rights uh, that are provided to all Israeli citizens are provided to Israeli citizens regardless of their ethnic or their religious background. And uh, the the idea that uh, that Israel is a racist state, well, this immediately uh, brought about a, um, a negative reaction from the Democrats uh, who lead the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries, for instance. The House Democratic leadership put out a statement saying concerning Jayapal's comments, though they didn't name her, Israel is not a racist state. As a Jewish and democratic nation, Israel was founded 75 years ago on the principle of complete equality of social and political rights for all of its citizens, irrespective of religion, race, or sex, as codified in its Declaration of Independence. And uh, that was uh, signed by Hakeem Jeffries and the three members of his top leadership team. Uh, and uh, they, they did add, there are individual members of the current Israeli governing coalition with whom we strongly disagree, uh, just as we often disagree with U.S. House Republican lawmakers. Okay, then uh, Jayapal herself, having been sort of spanked by her party's own leadership, uh, came out with a some something of a... a, a backtracking statement. She said, words do matter, and so it is important that I clarify my statement. I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I do, however, believe that, is, uh, that Prime Minister Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government has engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies 
and uh, that there are extreme racists driving that policy within the leadership of the current government. That current government, I believe, has only been in power a little bit more than one year. Uh, she uh, um, went on to say that uh, uh, that there were extreme racists driving that policy. Uh, she may be referring to Prime Minister Netanyahu or not. It could be uh, Minister Smotrich or uh, Ben Gavir. They're controversial people in the government. There's no question about it. Uh, Bibi, uh, the Prime Minister, just got out of the hospital. He was hospitalized uh, for dehydration. He was up by the Sea of Galilee recently, and uh, he apparently did not have enough to drink, I, I say as I'm reaching for my cup of water. Hold on. I can't really deliver that without having a sip of water. You'll pardon me. Um, but the uh, the idea that uh, that uh, somehow uh, th there is even uh, a, a debate on whether it's acceptable to uh, say. Uh, that Israel is a racist state. In other words, if Israel is a racist state, what about the rights of Jewish people, or for that matter, Christian people, to exercise full rights and full religious rights in Arab states? In other words, the uh, no one is talking seriously about moving Palestinian Arabs out of the Jewish state of Israel. But one of the insistent points that the Palestinians make, and they still do this again and again and again, is that if there will be a two-state solution and there's going to be a Palestinian state, uh, an Arab state of Palestine, then they want all of the Jewish residents of that part of the land to move. Very different perspective. Uh, Ron DeSantis on these issues coming up. Are you feeling tired as you're... And on the Michael Medved Show, I mentioned that Ron DeSantis, who has always been an outspoken supporter of the state of Israel, and of course... As governor of Florida, he uh, lives in a state with uh, one of the highest percentages of Jewish population of any state. And uh, But still, when he's speaking to Christians United for Israel, he's speaking to predominantly evangelical Christians, the same kind of people who have uh, determined the outcome of the Iowa caucuses for years and years and years. One of the things I was just reading about was uh, President uh, Reagan, when he was running for president, he was clearly the front runner in 1980. He had run for the nomination against Gerald Ford, had come very, very close. He'd been a two-term governor of California, and he was Ronald Reagan. And uh, he decided not to participate in the first scheduled debates and he ended up losing the Iowa caucuses. He did. He lost to uh, George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush, the older President Bush, of course, 
who then later became his vice president. Uh, Reagan took the command back because he did debate in New Hampshire, and he won the New Hampshire primary. In any event, um, Ron DeSantis uh, came to Washington and uh, had a very, very different line on America and Israel, this particularly at a time when the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, is coming to speak to a joint session of Congress this week. Uh, DeSantis said this to a very uh, enthusiastic crowd on his behalf at the Christians United for Israel. This is clip 19. Today, 75 years later, Israel has weathered repeated attempts at annihilation it has had to face enormous security threats, and yet it stands strong as a beacon of freedom and a home to amazing achievements and advancements, the likes of which other countries cannot match. We should all thank God for these 75 years. Uh, and then he also spoke uh, harshly about President Biden and his uh, outspoken interference with uh, what DeSantis considers to be Israeli domestic affairs, like the judicial reforms that are very controversial within Israel. Uh, DeSantis said this about President Biden. This is clip 17. So now we have a lot uh, on our plate for the road ahead. And I think we're in dire need of repairing the U.S.-Israel relationship. What this Biden administration has done, I think, has been disgraceful. The way they treat a strong ally like Prime Minister Netanyahu has been disgraceful. What they're trying to do to shoehorn Israel into bad policies has been disgraceful. You have different things that go on in Israel, like with this judicial uh, reform. Uh, Biden needs to butt out of that and let Israel govern itself. I can tell you this as president, I will welcome Prime Minister Netanyahu to come visit the White House. And we will welcome being able to go to Israel to have bilateral meetings. Okay, uh, the idea that he wants to be more unequivocal the way that President Trump certainly was in terms of aligning himself and allying himself with Israel is one thing. I think that most Israelis and uh, certainly uh, most Israelis who are politically anywhere between the center and the very extreme right would disagree with the use of terms like disgraceful uh, or shameful or the, the Biden administration has not been as pro-Israel by any means as the Trump administration. But uh, to say that, uh, that Biden has been a real problem for the state of Israel in the, in the same way that uh, Barack Obama was or the same way that Jimmy Carter was, uh, and that's after he had uh, put together the Sinai Accords. But in any event, the, the idea that uh, uh, Israel should not become a partisan issue that's something that most Israeli leaders, including very much my brother, uh, would tell you is, is tremendously important. It is tremendously important that you have the response of people like Hakeem Jeffries, 
the Democratic leader of the House when someone like Pramila Jayapal uh, blurts out that she considers Israel to be a racist state. It's important that the majority of Democrats don't endorse that idea. Uh, then DeSantis uh, said this about the United Nations, which uh, is not a, a popular organization among Israelis or among American supporters of the state of Israel. This is clip 18. January 20th, 2025, with respect to our relationship with the United Nations, there will be a new sheriff in town. We are not providing tax dollars to United Nations entities that are targeting Israel. We reject things like the Human Rights Council that brings in all these really uh, bad regimes and they just attack Israel. Uh, we reject things like UNESCO that doesn't even recognize the connection of the Jewish people to places like Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? So this shamefully targets Israel and it promotes anti-Semitism. It is wrong and it will come to an end in January 20th, 2025. Okay, uh, there was also, while all of this is going on, there is somebody else who um, uh, years ago got in all sorts of trouble for making anti-Semitic remarks in the back of a plane, actually. He was talking to a reporter. He didn't know that he was on the record. Uh, Jesse Jackson when he was running for president. Uh, he said he was heading to New York to collect some money for his campaign. And uh, he says, yeah, I'm going to Jaime Town to talk to Jaime. <laughs> and uh, he had to apologize greatly for that. He was honored uh, and emotionally honored by the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris in Chicago, upon the occasion of him resigning uh, giving up his leadership of the National Rainbow Coalition Operation Push. Uh, listen to Kamala Harris. And early on, just think about it, early on, he even had the audacity to name this coalition the National Rainbow Coalition. Think about that. He defined the rainbow. He was one of the first to define the rainbow. Okay, uh, Jesse Jackson <laughs> never intended uh, to call it the Rainbow Coalition as a symbolism of gay rights, which is extraordinarily weird that uh, she would try to suggest that, well, he defined the rainbow. I think, didn't uh, God do that with Noah in the book of Genesis? Uh, there was also something else that, that Kamala Harris said, which may have been just an effort to uh, misspeak. She was speaking at a Coppin State University in Baltimore, Maryland, on the need to build a clean energy economy. And uh, she said something very clearly that you will hear, which we'll play for you in just a moment as we come back. Uh, she said something that um, is just outrageous. And, and again, every time Kamala Harris has a big public statement, but this public statement uh, comes across a, a new scapegoat, brand new scapegoat for climate change. 
Uh, and who's responsible? Well, you are. Uh, why? Well, you'll, you'll hear in just a moment with Kamala Harris coming up. Now, what am I trying to say? The mic... Uh, that's Kamala Harris, and almost every day there's some kind of embarrassment. But here, what's fascinating is uh, there's a, uh, a very big difference between the recording, the tape of her speech at uh, Coppin State University in Baltimore uh, on the need to build a clean energy economy. This is, of course, one of her favorite topics. But uh, the transcript of her remarks uses a different word than the what she actually said. What she actually said, which is horrific, is this. Uh, listen, 6.5. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. Okay, you want to hear that again? She said reduce population. And in her uh, a transcript of her remarks, it showed the word uh, when we reduce pollution. Because the idea of reducing population is just not popular in this country. I, I know there are some people who believe, oh gosh, we'd be terrific if we weren't 330 million Americans if we were only... 100 million or 10 million because people are the problem. But uh, this is what she said, which makes no sense at all because there's no way that, uh, that using electric cars actually reduces the population unless you believe that cars, the main purpose is to make out in and well, never mind. Uh, this is, again, what the vice president of the United States had to say. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. Well, how can more of our children do all those things if we don't have more children? That's really quite extraordinary. Um, Al Gore at the Games for Change Festival in New York City and this is back in 2011, years ago. And uh, good for Jeremy Steiner, pride of Hillsdale College, remembering this. I'd forgotten it entirely. Uh, Al, Al Gore said the following. He said, uh, we don't have the actual audio, do we? We just have the text. Yeah, it, Al Gore said, you have to educate girls and empower women. And that's the most powerful leveraging factor. And when that happens, then the population begins to stabilize. And societies been, begin to make better choices and more balanced choices. The whole idea that the way you get a better environment is to have a reduction in population has not been proven any, anywhere around the world. The, the whole idea of the population bomb, which was supposed to bring so much starvation and misery uh, as uh, Bjorn Lomborg was making clear, very clear, and should be clear to everybody a little bit earlier on this show, uh, 
the uh, the progress that humanity has made over the last 25, 50 years has been remarkable. And uh, then there's another misstatement, and it's it's very weird. It's by the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota. And his name is Keith Ellison. He was the first, I believe, the first practicing Muslim member of the House of Representatives. But uh, he was doing a, an interview with the Michigan Chronicle, and he uh, took uh, made a point of attacking Clarence Thomas by comparing him to a character in a movie. Uh, this is clip 15. Well, Clarence Thomas, um, all you got, anybody who's watched the movie Django, just watch Stephen and you see Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a, he has decided that his best personal interest is siding with the powerful and the, and the, and the, and the, and the special interests and regardless as to who they're going to hurt. He's like, I'm looking out for me and I don't care nothing about you. And, but I'm on the Supreme Court, so it's my job to look out for you. So he's abdicating his responsibility. He has abdicated a long time ago. When he got on the off, when he got in office, he was this way. He's this way now. Maybe he's worse now. So Clarence Thomas needs to be impeached. Clarence Thomas has illegitimate and has no basis in the job that he's in. And it, it's a lesson to us as African Americans. Mm. What is the lesson? We all thought well, he's a black man raised in the deep South. He knows what racism, segregation is. He knows what affirmative action is. He's gonna come around one day. Understand that it's not a matter of pigment. It's a matter, it's not what's on your skin, it's what's in your mind. Okay, and uh, anyone really want to say that uh, Ralph Ellison with his reference to the Quentin Tarantino film, Django Unchained, uh, I mean, honest to goodness. Uh, by the way, I think Django Unchained was a wildly overrated movie. But the part that he's talking about, Stephen, is played by Samuel L. Jackson. And he is what is called and uh, the house N-word. And he is a house slave who is deeply loyal to his master. And his master is played by Leo DiCaprio. So, and uh, the, uh, uh, the idea that, uh, that uh, Clarence Thomas, who has struggled, he, he wasn't favored somehow by some master above who has uh, allowed him to live in the big house. He worked up from shacks and from true poverty and from true oppression, and he did it did it through his own brilliance and his own character. And the idea that you would attack someone like, uh, like Clarence Thomas in, in that regard is a shame. Speaking of a shame, over the July 4th weekend, there was a big national convention uh, of the National Education Association, a conference in Orlando, Florida. And Rebecca Pringle who is a president of the National Education Association, became emotional. Listen to clip 10. I can hear Chief Seattle crying out to us, urging us to remember when you know who you are, when you're 
mission is clear and you burn with the inner fire of an unbreakable will. No cold can touch your heart. No deluge can dampen your purpose. And yay, you are those stars in the darkness. Your light will not be dimmed. Your purpose will drive you in a righteous fight for freedom because you know who you are. Uh, by the way, Chief Seattle never, never said those things, but Rebecca Pringle did, and she actually went on. There's more of the same. Listen. Our mission is clear. We will advocate for the rights of education professionals, and we will change this world for our students with that inner fire we will never bend. We will never be broken because we are the NEA. And we will always, always do what we must to be worthy of our students. Thank you, NEA, for all you do every day for our babies and for our colleagues and for your states and for this country. But I'm not satisfied. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> Bringing back Al Gore a little bit. Um, is there any wonder why? I mean, a number of people have talked about the, the fact that that uh, Americans really do have a problem right now. And it's not so much seeing yourself as righteous and uh, doing the great will of Chief Seattle. Chief Seattle, by the way, was notable because as the chief of the Duwamish, he he was the one local Indian leader who welcomed what they called the Bostons, which was the people who actually had traveled uh, actually by by boat to get there and to establish this city in 1851. But leave that aside. The, the difficulty we have right now in this country is viewing the other side as the enemy, as uh, evil people who have no good intentions at all. And uh, this idea that uh, we just heard from Rebecca Pringle, we deserve better. We can do better in this greatest nation on God's green earth.